Well, we are, uh, we are continuing now our, our second uh, sermon in the book of Ephesians. We've called this sermon series One, uh, because that really is the, the theme of Ephesians. The theme of this letter is how God in Christ has made us one with him, how he's made us one family in spite of our differences. He's made us one uh, in spite of racial differences, in spite of cultural differences, that he's knitting one family together. By, and, and he's doing that by bringing us primarily into communion with himself, making us one with himself in Christ. And so, uh, this morning we continue in Ephesians 1. Um, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Seated. I'm going to share with you this morning a, a story that's a part of Abney family folklore. Um, and it's, it's true, uh, but it's certainly probably grown over time. Um, my, my great-grandfather, uh, when he first moved to this country, he was Czech. Uh, when he first moved here from, from Eastern Europe, he was, uh, his vocation was as a cabinet maker. He was a furniture maker. And so when he moved here, he, uh, he moved up to Grand Rapids, Michigan, in that area, and was working in the furniture plants there, building furniture by hand. And uh, one winter day... He went, uh, after a long day of work, they, they had a, uh, a boarding house where they lived uh, up near these uh, furniture, place, uh, furniture maker uh, places up in Grand Rapids. And so after a hard day work of work, he walked out from the boarding house to go to a bar, uh, I guess to blow off some steam after work. He goes in, he has a few drinks, and, uh, and as can happen in Michigan, a big winter storm blows up. Um, and it kept getting worse and worse, and he decided uh, to leave the bar and to go home. Apparently, it was only across the street, maybe 100 feet away. And yet, as he walked out, maybe stumbled out uh, of the bar, uh, towards the boarding house, he got disoriented. Uh, it was a blizzard, and he got, uh, it was a whiteout condition where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The snow was blowing so badly. And so even though he only had 100 feet to go to get to his, uh, his dorm, he walked around in circles uh, there in the blizzard, for, for hours, uh, unable to find his way home. He says that he would have died if somebody hadn't managed to see him from the boarding house and run out to grab him and bring him back. 
And uh, as the story goes, he decided right then and there, that very day, that he was going to move to Florida, that he was, uh, that he was leaving Michigan. A question, so he moved to the state with probably more ways to kill you than, uh, than any, you know, we've got alligators and swamps and sinkholes and hurricanes, but we don't have blizzards. So, uh, so he moved to Florida, uh, brought his family down here, and uh, we've been here uh, kind of ever since. But that image uh, of a man groping around, uh, unable to see, threats from the outside, the storm, the freezing cold, the blizzard, the, uh, the whiteout, unable to see, threats from inside, you know, maybe his own drunkenness, keeping him from being able to find his way, threats on the inside, threats on the outside, life in danger, but really the ultimate danger being the blindness, being the inability to actually to see what he's up against in the storm, to be able to see the resources near at hand to help him. I believe, and, and I think what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians is that that's a pretty good picture for the way that we live our lives. That we live our lives in a world where we're surrounded uh, by threats, we suffer, we get hurt, relationally, physically, in every way, we're we're vulnerable uh, to the threats of the world. We suffer threats from the inside, our own sin, our own pride, our own foolishness. But what ultimately is our biggest threat is our inability to see, our inability to make sense of what's happening to us. Why are we suffering like we are? Why are we sinning like we are? That it's the the blindness of our eyes that ultimately uh, can do us in. That's why Paul here prays for the Ephesian church that God would open the eyes of their heart, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to see their true condition, to see what's really going on in their lives and in their world, that they would come to understand it. And I think that's a prayer uh, that we need that we need to have answered for ourselves. I know that we live our lives uh, not only suffering, not only sinning, but confused by it, overwhelmed by it, because we can't see, right? We struggle with the addictive uh, patterns that that have kept us in ruts for years and years. It seems like the harder we try to get out of them, it's like spinning our tires, the more unable we seem to be. We, like Paul, can say, I don't even understand why I do what I do. I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. Right When we try to better our lives, when we try to, uh, to advance ourselves either out of poverty or ahead in our family lives, we, f- we feel like we're up against a force that we can't control. There's some of our own habits, some of our own foolishness, some of our own uh, laziness, some of our own stuff that can keep us stuck. But it also feels like there's bigger economic forces and cultural forces that can keep us right where we are. We all long for for intimate relationships, for intimate marriages and friendships. And yet we seem to keep hurting the people closest to us. We seem to, when we try to get closer, we only hurt each other more. And then we don't understand why. You know, I think that's probably the, when I meet with people for counseling and that kind of thing. I think that's the the main thing that hurts us as we sit down and we go, not only am I struggling, but I just don't know why. I don't understand why I do what I do, why we do, or why we're stuck in the same place we are. We need open eyes to come to see it. There's this, uh, there's this great story in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a story of a man named Elisha who is one of Israel's prophets. And uh, Israel at the time was at war with Syria. And uh, Elisha and one of his servants go to sleep in a city. And they wake up to find the city surrounded by the Syrian army. They wake up and Elisha begins to lead he and his his servant out. 
And the servant is terrified. The servant's terrified, and he says, no, master, we can't go out. We'll get killed. And Elisha says, fear not. There's more on our side than there are on theirs. And he prays to God that God would open the eyes of the servant. And the servant looks up, and around this Syrian army, he sees surrounding them uh, horses and chariots of fire, this supernatural army, that God's help is on their side. And I love that picture, and I think that's what Paul is is drawing on here for the Ephesians, that God would open their eyes, that it's like he would peel the cataracts off of their eyes to see clearly and really what's going on, what they're really up against, and what are the incredible resources that he has for them. And so really, particularly in this passage, we're going to look at those two things, what it is that we're up against in this world, and then what are the incredible resources that we have in Christ, that God would open our eyes to those things. Well, we're introduced in this passage to some words that are strange to us, but that are going to come up again and again in the book of Ephesians, Uh, some words that are really important if we want to understand the plot of Ephesians. And those come up here uh, when Paul says of Christ in verse 20, uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Above all, rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. This is the same collection of words that are going to be used later on by Paul uh, when we get to Ephesians 6, the the fairly well-known passage about uh, the armor of God and our spiritual warfare, where Paul says that we don't do battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the powers, right? The, the, The battle... Uh, that we're up against in the world is not first and foremost a physical one, but that there are supernatural spiritual forces of evil uh, that oppose God and oppose his work, that oppose God's will for his good creation to bring us to peace, to bring us to flourishing, that there's actually supernatural evil that opposes him. Um, This isn't, I think for many of us, something that comes naturally to talk about. It's not a way that it comes naturally for us to talk about what happened when Jesus died on the cross and when he, was, when he rose from the dead. I think we're used to thinking of it in terms of it. at the cross we got forgiveness of sins. Uh, in his resurrection we get new life. But what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he achieved victory over the enemies of God, over these spiritual forces of evil that oppose God. What this means, what these powers and authorities, to say that they're real, what it means is to say that the evil in the world, the evil that we face in the world, is greater than the sum total of evil in individual hearts. Right? That there's more evil in the world than is just accountable when we think about the frailty and wickedness of human hearts. There's something else that operates and that moves and that tempts and that can seduce human beings away from God's will and towards towards evil. Um, You know, it's easy to see that when you look at something like Hitler's rise to power in Nazi Germany, right? When we look at the chaos that fell out around the Holocaust, around the Second World War, um, it's hard, isn't it, to attribute that to, oh, well, there was just kind of one crazy person with some weird ideas, and he seduced a whole country into, into carrying out unthinkable evil. Right, it's easy when we look at, a, at somebody that evil, when we look at a situation that seems that just purely, darkly, starkly evil, that it's easier for us to think, well, there's something else going on there. There's something else than just a normal president leading his people in a bad direction. 
There's something that we can justly call evil, working in and through uh, Hitler, working through the crowds, working through the people involved in leading it. There's something identifiable. But the thing is, if there's evil there, if there's evil in Nazi Germany, then there's evil in America in 2016. Right? It's starker, it's easier, it's maybe easier to see in that kind of absolute term. But if there's evil operating there, then there's evil operating everywhere. Sometimes more subtly, sometimes more shrewdly, sometimes very much out in the open. But that there really is evil in the world. Now the Bible tells the story of these powers, these authorities. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 32... We learn this uh, about them. It's kind of a strange passage, but Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we learn this. Uh, It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the idea of what's going on here, and this is kind of strange to think about, is that when God created his good world, he mediated his creation. Now, he ruled the world through people that he wanted human beings to live in obedience to him and for them to rule over his creation and rule over it in goodness and justice. But he also put supernatural governors over his creation, that each nation, each tribe, each area would have angelic uh, overseers, people who helped to protect, who helped to guide his creation towards its fullness, towards its goodness, towards what the Old Testament calls shalom, perfect flourishing, perfect goodness. But that like human beings fell, these angelic powers also fell. Psalm 82 uh, gives us a picture, and we won't flip there, but it shows God ruling over what in that chapter actually called gods with lowercase g's, saying basically, I'm going to judge you because I put you over people to take care of them, to usher them towards what I want for them, and instead you oppress them, you keep them uh, in foolishness, you keep them in wickedness, you oppress the poor. So he holds them in judgment. And so, uh, in the Old Testament, and what Paul's working with as he writes to the Ephesians, is a much greater comfort level than we usually have about talking about supernatural evil working behind the powers of this world. When Israel would talk about the powers of this world that oppressed them, they'd talk about the Roman Empire, they'd talk about the Babylonian Empire, they would always be aware that what they were ultimately up against were the powers behind the powers. That it wasn't just Rome's army or Caesar's pride or any of those things that were the threat to them. That there were evil powers working behind those powers to bend them and to manipulate them and to make them evil. And so as we said, if that is the biblical picture of the world and if it's operating in ancient Rome and it's operating in Nazi Germany, right? then we have to open our eyes to the fact that there's evil operating in our world today, that there's power... There's powers behind the powers. Taking what would be good things of God's creation in human creation, things like governments, things like universities, things like prisons, things like um, uh, hospitals, these good institutions that human beings build, these good powers that God's given humans, that there's powers working behind them seeking to manipulate and twist them and make them less than they were created to be. Right, it's easy to see how nationalism and pride in our country gets, gets twisted. That patriotism gets twisted into nationalism, gets twisted into empire building, gets t- twisted into believing we're better than other people. Right, it's easy to see how a government uh, that's rooted, or an economy 
that's rooted in opportunity for everyone to earn, for everyone to achieve, for people to make money, can be twisted by greed to become a place where people try to get rich at the expense of others instead of also for others. We're a country like America where individual rights and individual freedoms are such a, a wonderful cornerstone of our society can get twisted into to an individualistic culture where everyone's out for himself, where we think of ourselves as cut off from our neighbors and our broader community, that there's powers that work behind the good things, that work behind what could be a blessing, to twist it uh, and to make it used for evil. You know, we could look at, at, at thousands of, of examples of this and the ways that these things bump into us in our individual lives. I'm going to look at one just as an example because it, uh, it was brought to my mind this, uh, this week. It was actually on the cover of, uh, of Time Magazine this week. Actually, I think the cover was uh, Ted Cruz, but one of the little side articles on the cover uh, was about what they called the pornography epidemic in America and the threat that it poses to marriages. The increasing reports uh, that, come that come up around the country uh, about the ways that pornography is destroying intimacy uh, in real marriages. Right? And they look at a couple of things, um, very interesting. In 2007 uh, was the year that over 50% of American households went to having broadband internet uh, in their house, where you could have really anything you wanted to see as quick as you could think it on a desktop computer. 2013 was the year that America went to where over 50% of people uh, have a smartphone. We're now on a phone in a pocket. You can have almost instant access to almost anything that you want to see. And now, 2016, we're at an age where teenagers who grew up with that are now in their 20s and moving into marriage. One man in this interview a married man struggling with some dysfunction in his marriage, said he felt like he was a guinea pig in a sociological experiment to see what happened when you exposed teenage boys to unfettered access to sexual images. And he said that the results of the experiment are not good. He's felt it eroding his capacity for intimacy with his wife, his capacity for real human connection. I see it in men that I deal with, men in this church on a regular basis. I see it, I've seen it in my own life. The struggle that comes from the unfettered, the, 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 just the way that our society puts this pressure and puts this temptation. And so what happens when you tell a man who was raised in this culture, raised in this context, to just stop it? I know the solution to your problem. Just don't look at pornography, right? That'll fix it. Well, what's he up against in that battle? Right? Certainly there's his own lust, his own sin. He's up against that from the inside. He's up against emotional and psychological issues about ways that he's learned to connect and relate, the ways he's learned to self-medicate. But beyond that, he's up against cultural issues. Right, This incredibly sexualized culture is up against him. He's up against technological issues. Right, Technology isn't slowing down any uh, as we move forward into the future. So there's, there's things, again, technology should be good. The internet should be a a, you know, it's an invention of human ingenuity that should serve to advance society. But instead, he's also up against that. He's up against the individualism of America that tells him to not tell anybody what's going on in his heart. Tells him not to let anybody know what he's struggling with. And so when you tell him just to go out and stop it, he's up against the powers. He's up against the rulers and the authorities, the things that have worked behind the powers 
in the culture, to make it not as simple, is just saying, stop sinning. We have to understand that we're opposed. We're opposed by real forces and real powers. He's actually up against the gods of America. Sex and materialism, pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not going anywhere. Things that make multiple billions of dollars in America don't go away. So he's up, against, he's up against greed, he's up against sex, he's up against individualism. He's up against the gods of our culture, playing out that drama in his own heart, and his own marriage. We're up against the powers. That's the reason for the blizzard. That's the reason for the confusion. But what Paul is mainly focused on here is to get us to open our eyes, not only to what we're up against, but to the incredible resources that we have. Really, his focus, even in just bringing these things up, you know, he'll come back to it in Ephesians 6, that yes, we're still in a battle. We're still, we're still fighting. But the, the, the war has been won in Christ. Look at what he says here. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That these powers that work against our flourishing and the flourishing of God's plan have been defeated. They've been destroyed. That in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus Christ has, has defeated them completely. The war is over and it's done. Some have used the analogy that we live our lives between D-Day and V-Day. Uh, D-Day, when the Allies landed... Wow, we got a lot of World War II analogies this week. Uh, when, when the Allies uh, landed on Normandy Beach, defeated the German army, the war was as good as done. There was no winning the war for Hitler at that point. When you had forces coming from the east, forces coming from France, it was over. But there were still real bullets and real battles that needed to get fought. Uh, there as ground was taken. But according to Paul, it's even bigger than that. That the fabric of the universe has been altered forever through the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. That our realities as human beings have been changed forever, changed in their very nature when we're joined by faith to Jesus. That no longer do those powers and authorities, those evil things in the world and the evil within us as sinners, no longer do those things have the power to damn us. No longer do they have the power to rule and ruin our lives. That Jesus Christ has already defeated them and is already ruling and reigning over them. And one day, he'll destroy them completely and utterly forever. And what Paul wants us to have our eyes open to is all that's ours because Jesus has defeated them. Right? He said in, our, in the beginning of Ephesians 1 that, he's, uh, that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? And now what he's doing is he's explaining, taking all of those blessings that we have in Christ and praying that for the Ephesians and for us, that we'd actually live in light of them, that we'd come to realize what they are, and that we'd come to live as though they're a reality in our lives. The first thing that he, that he brings up and that he's praying for is that the Holy Spirit would give them, well, I'll, I'll read it, uh, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Because of Jesus' victory over the powers, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living in us and with us. And what Paul's pointing us to is that what that Spirit does is that Spirit shows us, it opens up the eyes of our heart to see all that we have in Jesus. The Spirit's role is to move our eyes towards Jesus. You know, the, if, we, if we continue our blizzard metaphor, 
The thing that we need to see most isn't what we're up against. The thing we need to see most is Jesus. The thing when everything's raging against us, when we're in the midst of the mess that we've made of our lives, when we're in the midst of temptation, in the midst of sin, what we need to see more than we need to see anything else is Jesus and who he is and what he offers us. And the role of the Spirit is to move our hearts to see Jesus. J.I. Packer, a great English thinker, has this great analogy for what the Holy Spirit does. He talks about he was walking down the streets of London um, at night, and he walked past the front of Westminster Cathedral, this you know, unmistakable landmark in, in the middle of London. And as he was walking by for a, uh, to display the facade of Westminster, they had positioned these large spotlights that shined up so that you could see in relief all of the beautiful carvings and statues. You could see in the darkness, because of the light, you could see the beauty of the cathedral. And what he says is that those spotlights, that's the work of the Spirit, is to throw light on Jesus so that we can see him, so that we can more clearly see the blessings that we have in him in, uh, through faith in him. So we have a Spirit uh, that shows us Jesus. We have a Spirit that gives us his power. I love this, verse 19. Uh, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Right, The spirit, a spirit in both Hebrew and Greek, uh, comes from the root word meaning breath or wind. Right, So what he's saying is that the same breath of God that breathed new life into Jesus' lifeless body when when he lay there in the tomb after the crucifixion, the same breath that breathed new life into Jesus breathes new life into our souls when we place our faith in Christ. That we have a new power for a new life, no longer having to be ruled over by sin. Friends, when you think about the the blizzard that you're wandering through in your life, when you think about the ways that you suffer, when you think about the temptations that you face, when you think about the guilt that you feel, when you think about your inability to see your way through it, are you trying to do it under your own power? Are you trying to fight your way through and grope your way through that darkness, uh, believing that ultimately you're on your own, left to your own ingenuity, left to your own skill, left to your own wisdom? Or do you believe that you have the Spirit of God, that you have a new power that actually can help you in the midst of that? That you don't have to face the battles of this life in your flesh, in your, just according to your own abilities, but that God's power is for you and it's in you, helping you in the midst of that. Even those of us, uh, you know, Paul was writing to a church. He was writing to people who'd been Christians, some of them for decades, saying, you too need to have your eyes opened to see the power that you have in Christ. So whether you're, it's for the first time and you're here today, and maybe it's the first time in church in a while and you're exhausted trying to work your way through this world on your own power. Maybe it's opening yourself up in faith for the first time. Uh, to, the re- to the reality that Jesus uh, really does offer you victory over your temptation, over your sin, forgiveness, and a new power to work your way through it. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for so long that you've just gotten exhausted, and he's calling you to look at the fact that you've been trying to do it on your own uh, for a really long time. You've been trying to do it uh, on your own steam, under your own power, uh, instead of relying on his spirit. Paul wants us to have our eyes open to the resources that we have. And then finally, I love this. He wants us to have our eyes open to just how much God treasures us, how much he loves us. Look at this. this is, uh, you might miss this your first time reading through. I did. 
again uh, in verse 19, that you might know the hope that he's called you, to which he's called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, earlier in chapter 1, uh, Paul talked about our inheritance, right? That because of Christ, because of the cross, we have an inheritance, that we are like children of the king who are going to inherit something great, that we're going to go inherit the kingdom. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not talking about our inheritance, our future. He's talking about God's inheritance. Right? He says that you would have eyes to see his inheritance in the saints. That's the church, the, his people. What did Jesus get for dying for sins? I know what we get. Right? We get heaven. That sounds great. Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us. We're his prize. We're the reason that he did battle with the, the powers of evil in this world. The reason that he willingly let his body be torn limb for limb was for us. He could have had heaven. He could have had the kingdom. But he couldn't have had us. We're his prize. We're his inheritance. We're what he's in heaven waiting on is to get us. He's like a, an, an engaged man or woman who just can't wait to be reunited with their fiancé and be married. He's like a, he's a doting parent who can't wait to see their kids, who just loves them so much. He can't wait for us. We're his treasure. That is so far from the way that I think about God. That is so far from the reality that I live in. You know, I think there's always a gap uh, between the way that somebody loves with that kind of intensity and the way that we experience it. I don't, I don't think my kids have a clue how much I love them. I don't, I don't think any of our kids do. I think they know that we're lo they're loved. I think I, I, sometimes in a really great way, they take it for granted, right? They, in some ways, in terrible ways, they take it for granted, <laughs> right? But there's no way for me as their dad. They know I love them, of course. But to really translate how much I love them, to translate the depth of it, to translate, you know, I don't think I understood how much my parents, what they meant when they said they loved me till I had kids. And you go, oh man, like this? Like this is how I've been loved? Right, there's always a gap, but I mean, just through maturity, through experience, I think we know as adults love in a way that children don't, and you can't quite communicate it to them. And if that's the gap between us and our kids, how vast is the gap between God and us? Right? Yeah, he tells us we love him, that he loves us. We can, and I think we know it. I think all of us, if we say, how does God think about you? We go, yeah, he loves us because he's God and he's kind of supposed to. No, but he loves us. He loves us in a way that, that, we, that we can't quite grasp with our limited human hearts and minds. He loves us in a way that we're going to spend the rest of, not only our lives, but the rest of eternity learning and discovering and living into. And what Paul says is he, he, he's praying, his prayer for the Ephesians is that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that the scales would come off, that the veil would be peeled back enough, that they can start to live into in this life, in the midst of their afflictions, in the midst of their suffering, just how deeply and how completely and how utterly they're treasured by God and loved by him. I need that prayer to be answered in my own life. I imagine we all do. So let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I confess uh, that my comprehension of your love for me in Jesus is about an inch deep. I confess it with my mouth one day, and then the next day I am complaining about how utterly alone I am in the world. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that more and more you would help me to live as though this is really true, that you would help me to live with an awareness of all that I have in Christ, that you would help each of us to live with an awareness of the power that we have through the Spirit and the love that you have showered on us in Jesus that you would help us to live not as orphans, but as your uh, beloved sons and daughters, to to believe and to live and to know that we are your inheritance, that we are your treasure. Lord, there's powerful medicine in that uh, for those of us who grope our way through the darkness of this world, for those of us who suffer and struggle, who sin, who feel weighed down by guilt and shame. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us more than the enemies that we face, that you would show us the advocate that we have, that you'd show us uh, the power that we have, that you'd show us the love that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.